but we have at least an hour and a half message this morning, so we need to get started. For those of you that may be new with us, I'm Pat, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We'll be in chapter 18, finishing it off today, verses 25 through 40. The subject of the message today is what is truth? In all honesty, in this day and time in our world, I do not know of a more relevant or more significant subject that we could give some time and attention to, what is truth? So with that, uh, let me just share a little bit of my journey. Uh, I've been following Jesus for many years. Uh, I've had this question kind of always bubbling in the background of my mind, trying to find a clear, concise, powerful description of what is truth. I've read apologetic books. I've read books specifically on the subject of truth. And uh, I hope today that in some way we can bring some clarity to that subject in ways that uh, maybe you haven't experienced, maybe some of you have. I don't know if you have a better one, come tell me. I'm looking for something that's powerfully simplistic and clear in these times. So again, join me as we read the section of Scripture we'll be in today, and then we'll introduce it a bit more. Now Simon Peter was standing, please stand. Since it says standing, <laughs> it reminded me. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back inside, or back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. 
but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's the reading of the word for today. Please be seated. As I said to you, the search for truth is is not recent. It's been around for a long, long time. And these words of Pilate have reverberated through history and have caused many to uh, address that issue one way or another as I have. I don't know about you, but maybe you possess the same kind of questions or maybe you've got it all figured out. If you do, blessings are on you. I want to just show you a, a couple of examples of what truth is not that are very current in our culture. Uh, the first is a slide from uh, just a picture of, of an English artist who is fairly contemporary in our time. And this is her take on truth. What is truth? Truth doesn't really exist, she says. Who's going to judge whether my experience of an incident is more valid than yours? No one can be trusted to be the judge of that. Interesting thoughts, but very common in our culture. Mahat Gandhi said this, what is truth? A difficult question, but I have solved it for myself by saying that it is what the voice within you tells you. Interesting as well. And lastly, even to show the state of things in the general world in which we live, Time Magazine had a cover and an article uh, a while ago that says, is truth dead? Well, I personally don't believe it is. I hope you don't as well, and I hope at the end of the service today you'll be more convinced than ever that it is not dead, and it is still as relevant and powerful as it ever has been. So today we're going to break down the passage in uh, four different ways, four fingers. Uh, the first is the uh, three examples or demonstrations of deceit or untruth. The first is the denial, the denial of Peter. The second is the deceptive works, the deception of the Jews. Then the dishonesty of Pilate. And lastly, we're going to answer the question from Jesus' perspective and some other uh, resources I found about what truth is. So with that, let's jump into the situation that Simon Peter found himself in. He was outside, uh, kind of around this barrel full of burning wood or whatever to warm himself on a cool evening. Uh, he'd been there. Uh, he'd gone with Jesus uh, at least that far. He couldn't go any further, but that's kind of the setting we see. The scripture says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So when we enter this text, we're now at a place where Peter's already denied Jesus once. The slave girl that was kind of in this same area had asked him a question about whether or not he was one of Jesus' disciples, and he, was, uh, he denied it then. Uh, he comes up to this barrel or whatever it was, fire to warm himself, and he was asked that same question again, we presume by another person, and he denied it a second time. And then a person who had been present apparently when he was arrested and when he chopped off Malchus's ear said to him, are you the one who cut off Malchus's ear? And he again for the third time denied that he had 
been there and that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And at that very, instance, that very instance, in fulfillment with the prophetic truth of Jesus Christ, the rooster crowed. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus was walking by at this very moment and that he looked at Peter and Peter looked at him and Peter went out and wept for he had denied his savior. Just a couple things about Peter. You know, he, he was the only one besides John that went with Jesus to his arrest and to his trials. So he was there because he loved Jesus but he also fell into this fear for his own life, perhaps, we don't know, but he ended up denying Jesus three times. I know I love Jesus. He went on to be one of the most powerful uh, proclaimers of the gospel and followers of Jesus, but in this moment, I don't know about you, but like me, he denied Jesus. It happens to us when we're not thinking, when our eyes aren't him, on, on Jesus, we, we don't think through the implications of what we say and we let things come out of our mouths that we would never really support. Jolene and I were watching a bicycle race over in Windsor probably four, maybe five years ago. There's a big hill on, on, uh, on Highway 7 that goes up to 34 out of Windsor and it's a really steep hill. They run all the bicyclers by there to see how many of them can make it up the hill without stopping. And so we're sitting there at the side of the, the, the road in our little lawn chairs next to a car that had pulled off and there were a couple gals. And so we started visiting with them and we got closer and closer and closer to spiritual things, but I never, ever brought up my faith or my trust or any discussion about Jesus. I denied him before her. I failed to take an opportunity at that time. And Julian and I talked about that afterwards and it still, it breaks my heart that I had that opportunity and I didn't speak the words of my love for my Savior. And that's what Peter did. And I assume some of us have done the same kinds of things. And it's a distortion of the truth. It's denial of the reality. Peter was one of the faithful followers of Jesus, but yet he denied him. Well, let's go on to look at the deception of the Jews. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and then could not eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. I mean, you can almost hear the anger in their voice. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This man was, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What's unfolding here is kind of the result of what John didn't communicate to us in his gospel, but what Luke did in uh, his gospel, or excuse me, Mark in his gospel in chapter 14, beginning in verse 60. Jesus was taken to the house of Caiaphas, and there he was tried before the Jewish leaders. And he was literally forced to answer the question, was he God or was he not God? And he said, of course, he was God. He was the son of God. And they accused him of blasphemy, which among the Jews was a sin unto death. And so it was based on this that the Jews brought Jesus to, to uh, Pilate. But they didn't raise that right at the beginning. 
They didn't raise anything, it doesn't seem like, other than he deserved death, he was a wicked, evil man. And so they bring all this uh, before Pilate, this untruthful testimony about him. Remember, if, if you asked Jesus, are you God? And he said, yes, he was telling the truth because he is God, God incarnate. And so even though they called it blasphemy, they were the liars. They were the deceivers, as we will see. So anyway, uh, all this was going on just before the Passover, and Pilate and his forces were probably in Jerusalem to prevent any uprising or any disturbances because of the the pride of the Jews. And so all this was staged and, and appropriate. It was early in the morning. The trial was probably at dawn, and then Jesus was taken over to uh, Pilate's headquarters, which was probably in the temple of Antonio. We don't know for sure. And there he was presented to Pilate by the Jews for crucifixion. What, just, one, just one little insight from this passage that, that I think is profoundly interesting. These Jews, the text says, would not go in to Pilate's palace because they didn't want to defile themselves so they couldn't eat the Passover. So they were more concerned about a religious opportunity to eat a meal than they were about an unjust death of Jesus Christ. This is the hypocrisy and the power of deception and deceit in the human life. And I don't know that these men even saw or understood the duplicity of their actions, but they literally mocked Jesus even more by being so observant of these ritualistic laws, but yet conspire for his murder. I want you to see that. The amazing thing too, and we know God and his sovereign plan and purpose was behind all this, but they wanted to go eat the Passover by killing a lamb and celebrating the fact that in years ago, as Jason talked to us about last week, God had raised up the Passover lamb. A lamb was slaughtered and the, the family ate it and then they painted the, the pillars of their door so that the angel of death would pass over them. That's where the word Passover came and it w- was what was being celebrated. What these Jews did not realize they were doing was putting to death the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The irony is profound. And the truth of what God was about is clear and just mightily impactful in this passage. Pilate comes out kind of a little bit dismayed, not sure what he, that he had any basis for bringing charges against Jesus. It was an alleged crime at best. Uh, and literally, it wasn't deserving legally uh, under Roman law to put a man for blasphemy. So they, they really didn't use that word because it was a religious deal. And that's why he says, take him out and you deal with him. Uh, if this man were not, do, but, and, and they get angry, he says, what accusations did you bring against this man? Uh, and then they, they get kind of defensive. They say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He says, literally, you punish him. It's your law that he's violated, not the law of Rome. And understand there's religious law here, and then there's, there's the, the law of Rome. And uh, in the course of this day, Jesus is going to stand trial six times three before the religious leaders and three times before the legal leaders of his day. Anyway, uh, he refuses to take them at their word and commit to put Jesus to death to sentence him to crucifixion at this point. 
Uh, and all of that was because the only way they could have done it, if they would have done it, would have been to stone him to death, not to crucify him. They did not have that power. And remember, verse 32 tells us all this is unfolding in the sovereign will and purpose of God. The truth of God is being lived out, played out before our very eyes in these texts. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. What is before us is the duplicity, the deceit of the uh, Jewish leaders in trying to get Jesus crucified for something that really uh, he wasn't deserving of from the eyes of the Roman law. But nonetheless, they keep uh, trying to get this all to happen, as we know. Uh, they do get it eventually accomplished through Pilate. We'll talk more about that. But literally, what's going on is the twisting of the truth, deception, deceit, in order to try to get Pilate in some way to make the determination to put Jesus to death for some law that Rome could uphold. And literally, what happens, I think, and we find in the next verse that Pilate enters his headquarters again. He'd been out talking with him, and it doesn't tell us this in the text, but it's very obvious from what follows that at that point is when they raise the issue with Pilate that he was a king. Uh, we see uh, that, in my view, they twisted the truth of Jesus' testimony and they used it as a basis for a legal charge against him before Pilate and the Roman law, claiming he was a rebellious king, that he had come to overthrow Rome, those kinds of things, and he d really did deserve the death penalty. Uh, all of this was being... Uh, kind of perpetrated by them to deceive and lead Pilate astray. We come now, so that's the end of the deception of the Jews. We want to come now and take a few moments to look at the dishonesty of Pilate and how he handled this whole situation. So join me in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's why I think while he they was outside with the Jews, they suggested to him he was portraying himself he was leading a revolt he was a king Jesus answered do you say this for of your own accord or did others say it to you about me and Pilate answered am I a Jew your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me what have you done Jesus answered my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not of this world. <clears throat> so we see here the beginning of the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate about whether or not he was a king. Pilate brings that, I believe, because of the accusations of the Pharisees and, and the ruling Jews. And he confronts him with that. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And I, I want you to think for a moment. Here's Jesus standing before Pilate. <coughs> He doesn't look like a soldier. He's not with any soldiers. There are no ones to fight his battles. He didn't come and raise up an army. And, and he actually goes on and says this to Pilate. But before he goes there, he says, who put this thought in your mind? Did it come from someone else? Or is this something you came up on your own? He was trying <coughs> to help Pilate understand the source of his questioning in this, uh, in this event. Did what you say come from someone else, i.e., 
the chief priests, the, those who are accusing me, or is it something that came up in your own mind and heart? And, and I mean, just thinking about Jesus standing before Pilate, how would he ever for a moment think Jesus was a king that was trying to overthrow uh, Palestine and, and the Jewish uh, area that Rome ruled? Uh, just seems infeasible to me. Jesus uh, says that he uh, was a king. Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord? Uh, am I a Jew or your nation? And, and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? At this point, he's trying still to get to the heart of it, and Jesus begins to answer his question. My kingdom is not of this world. He's telling him, you understand kingdoms from a worldly point of view. You've been put in power by a king. You have a dominion over which you rule and reign. Those are things you know about Pilate. But my kingdom has none of those attributes. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is of a spiritual nature. It's in the hearts and lives of people who believe me and who follow me. He doesn't say that, but that is the implication of what he's teaching. My kingdom is not of the world. And, and, and he proves it by these words. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of the world. He repeats that. He defines clearly that there would have been a rebellion if he had come and, and assumed power from this world, had a dominion or a geographic location over which he sought to rule. But none of that was true. His kingdom was a kingdom that came from heaven and it came with him and it came to rule in the hearts and lives of people. We call Jesus king here, but we don't, we don't proclaim or affirm in any way that he's, he's king of any territory in the United States or in Greeley, Colorado. He's king in your heart and your life. He's your ruler in that way and, and he explains that to Pilate. He was a, a king in the realm that was prescribed by and given to him by the Father in heaven. And he, he proves that, he gives evidence of that by discussing the fact that he has no army, he has no followers. And then he repeats again, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said to him then in verse 37, so you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. We're going to go on in a moment and see a little bit more about the truth that Jesus spoke, but right now he's affirming the truth that he is a king, but not of this world. He was born for the purpose of uh, fulfilling the role of king and being in this world in the way in which he was to serve the purpose of, we will find out, bring God's truth to the world. And so... Uh, we see this unfold, and uh, we're not going to spend a lot more time with Pilate at this point. I just want to leave you with these things. Pilate still did not believe that Jesus was guilty of any crime. He says that in verse 39. He went out and he told the Jews this, So do you want me to respond to you, the king of the Jews? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. It's back, it's, it's in, it's in uh, 38. He says, I find no guilt in him. And after this, he went out and he, he offered him up to the people uh, and suggested that, that, they should, that he should release Jesus to them. They had that privilege every year at Passover to uh, have one prisoner released. And he gave them the choice of Jesus, king of the Jews, or Barabbas. 
And of course, we know as the uh, text unfolds and as we'll see next week, they chose Barabbas and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we'll see in the account next week, twice more, Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Why I call Pilate dishonest in this is that he acted against everything he knew about Jesus and he led him and subjected him to crucifixion all under the sovereign guidance of God and we'll talk about that in a bit. But that brings us now to what I want to really talk about and it's Jesus and what he said about himself in this passage and then what we can learn in this passage about truth itself. So join me in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. And here's what I want you to hear. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And notice in each place the word truth is definite. It carries the word the truth as though truth is a singular, powerful entity that God provides to us in this world, and we're going to talk more about that. And Pilate asked him this question that has plagued people for a long, long time. What is truth? What is truth? Do you have an answer for what truth is? We hope we'll we'll get there today. All of this was unfolding and Jesus was testifying his reason and purpose for being there. He was born to bring God's kingdom into this world. He was the sole purveyor of truth as we know truth in the world. He was born a king and he served his king. He served as king and died as king. And we know ultimately and finally that his death was all within the plan, purpose, and will of God. He came to be the savior of the world, to literally fulfill the prophecies that uh, we see even in this passage that he would be raised up by crucifixion to pay the penalty for sin and to point men to the real source of life and salvation. That sin has alienated us from God. We all sin, we all fall short. But in Jesus Christ, because his redemptive work, his death on the cross, by faith in him and him alone, we can be restored to a right relationship with God. And that's the gospel. It's that simple and it's that powerful. You know, and I I really think, what was Jesus doing here? I think one of the things he was doing was trying to appeal to Pilate. Trying to see if this man was open to spiritual truth and would respond to this idea of what is truth. And when he raises that question, I, I want you to just think for a moment with me. Here's Jesus standing before Pilate And Pilate says, what is truth? Standing before Pilate was Jesus Christ. He was and is the absolute and perfect revelation of truth that has ever been on this planet. And he was standing directly in front of Pilate. And Pilate asked this question, what is truth? The answer he sought was right there. And he did not see it, he did not understand it, and he did not believe it. So with that, let's talk about what is truth. Truth was put on trial, was judged by people who were devoted to lies. Truth faced, as I mentioned earlier, six trials in in about a day. Three by religious people and three by legal political people. What is truth, Pilate asked. And to this day, many people have no idea how to answer that question. 
I have sought for an answer for it for many years in my own personal study, something that I could understand, something that was synced, something that was powerful. So I've never done this before in 40 years of preaching, but I'm going to read to you for the next 10 or so minutes from a document that will be handed to you if you would like one as you leave the church service today. It is a document written by Dr. Steve Lawson. It's published for Legionnaire's Ministry, R.C. Sproul's Ministry on What is Truth. And this is, in my view, my humble view, the most clear, concise description of truth I've ever read. I hope it will be a benefit to you, so hang on. Uh, I'm gonna say a few things before I start reading from it, but understand that simply stated, truth is what conforms to reality. Theologically, truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Truth is the self-disclosure of God himself. It is what it is because God declares it so and made it so. All truth must be defined in terms of God, whose very nature is truth. If you read the scripture, you will find very clearly that God is defined as truth, the God of truth. Jesus Christ, as we've seen in this journey through John's gospel, in chapter one, verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Later in John 14, six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The spirit of God is called the truth, the spirit of truth in John 14, 17. And finally and lastly, the word of God is called truth. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Word are all declared to be God's truth. And I want you to remember that. I want all of us to remember that, and I want those to become the four foundational building blocks of our lives spiritually as we move forward. John Calvin says this, and all of the things I'm going to say from this point forward will be in this handout, so you don't need to Jot anything down, you'll all have it in your hand as you leave church if you choose to. John Calvin said this, nothing is deemed more precious to God than truth. Think about that. We, we cannot live without God's truth. It is everything we need for life and godliness. And, and uh, what Lawson does, he goes on to define truth in six different ways. And I'm gonna read those to you the first of which is truth is divine. Ultimately, all truth is God's truth. Truth is from above. It is not of this world. It is not what the crowd speculates something to be. It is not determined by opinion polls, nor is it discovered by public surveys. It is not grandfathered in by human tradition. Truth can be known only by divine revelation. That word is powerfully and theologically important. Divine revelation means that everything we need to know has come from God and has been revealed to us in this book and also in the events and lives of the Spirit of God and of Jesus Christ and of God himself that are recorded in this book. That is divine revelation. And that's what this speaks of. God is the one source and sole author of truth. 
Sin is whatever God says it is. Judgment is whatever God says it is. Salvation is what God says it is. Heaven and hell are what God say they are. It matters not what man says, but simply what God says. One word of, and this is so powerful, one word of what God says is worth more than 10,000 libraries filled up with the words of men. One word. That is, his word is life. His word is everything. And we need to see that and understand that. Secondly, he says, truth is absolute. Without God, there cannot be any absolutes. Without absolutes, there could be no objective universal truths. Without absolutes, truth becomes subjective, relative, pragmatic. Without absolutes, truth gives way to mere personal or cultural preferences. Do we see that today? Everywhere. Everywhere. But to the contrary, all truth is absolute because God is absolute truth. This means that only what is of truth is true. Everything contrary to the truth is a lie. All, if all truth is God's truth, then all untruths are the devil's lies. The issue in our day is whether there, and listen closely to this, the issue in our day is whether there is absolute truth that is true for everyone, no matter who they are, where they live or what they do. You hear this all the time. Many people say truth is whatever they want it to be. They claim that what you believe is true for you, and they claim what I believe is true for me, even when the true are worlds apart and totally in denial of one another. It happens every day something cannot be both true and not true. In such a worldview of self-deception, truth is no longer objective. Yes, Time Magazine, truth is dead, if that's the basis upon which it is laid out there. Francis Schaeffer says this, Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality. There is, it exists, that is, it exists without any exceptions. Truth is absolute because it is derived from the one God. Absolute truth depends on God. Truth is exclusive, not inclusive. It is discriminating as it excludes what is not true. Truth is incompatible with and intolerant of all error. Truth is singular, the third point. It does not exist in bits and pieces of unrelated ideas or disconnected data. It can never be found in a study of comparative religions or competing philosophies. Instead, all truth is found in the one true God because truth is one body of truth. It is always internally consistent. It never contradicts itself. Truth always speaks with one voice and is always in perfect agreement with itself. It is always in harmony with everything else it says since each aspect of truth is congruent with the sum of its parts. Truth has the final word in all matters, telling us how to worship and how to walk. It tells us how to follow Christ. It is the final arbiter on any subject. That is truth. Schaefer says of this, Francis Schaefer, Christianity is not a series of truths to be plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. There is one body of truth that is God's truth. And that's what this book unfolds and holds before us. 
Truth represents a singular worldview. It presents one origin for the universe, one problem for the human race, one way of salvation, one way of holiness, one standard for the family, one plan for human history, one consummation for the ages. That is truth. James Montgomery Boyce asserts, truth holds together. There is no phase of truth that is not related to every other phrase of truth. All things that are true are part of the truth and stand in proper relationship to God who is himself truth. Truth is consistent with itself. Point four, truth is objective. It means that truth is not subjective. It is not discovered by personal feelings nor determined by private intuition. Instead, truth is propositional. It is conveyed in narrowly defined words that have rational definitions and is stated in precise terms that communicate real meaning. Words mean something in regard to truth. Therefore, truth is black and white. It is definite, definitive, and conclusive. Truth is not abstract, vague, or nebulous. It is accurately stated by the fixed meaning of words and can be observed, discussed, studied, analyzed, believed, proclaimed, and defended. I'm going to skip some of this. It's in the handout. Truth is immutable. Since God is unchanging, neither does his truth, which cannot be true today, but not true tomorrow. Truth does not change. Truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right is always right, and wrong is forever wrong. Societies may try to refine morality. Culture may try to reclassify its mores, but Jesus identified himself as the truth, capital T, the truth, not the custom of the day. Truth is forever the same. Scriptures support that. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalms 119.89. Isaiah 48 affirms the grass withers, the flowers, flowers fade, but the word of God abides forever. And lastly, truth is authoritative. Truth does not stammer or stutter. It speaks with the supreme authority of God himself. It always makes demands upon us, never offers mere suggestions. It never presents just one more option to consider. It is never intended to be simply interesting. It never speaks to tickle our curiosity. Instead, truth speaks with the voice of sovereignty. Truth roars with the sound of many waters, drowning out every other voice. Truth is commanding, arresting, and directional. It has the authority to order us. Truth must, therefore, be heard. It demands our undivided attention. We cannot pretend that truth has not spoken. We cannot act as if it will go away. We cannot live in denial of truth. It lays hold of us by the lapels and draws us close. It summons us and mandates our complete compliance. Truth is binding upon our lives. Truth demands our response. I want to close with these words and just remind you again, please, please take a handout, read it, meditate on it. I've never done this before simply because I've never found anything that I thought was this important to do this with. But is truth important in our world, our time, our lives? Unequivocally, yes. May we know deeply what truth is. Truth has the final word in all matters. 
telling us how to worship and how to walk. It tells us how to follow Christ. It is the final arbiter of any subject. It is the final judge of every life. All people are measured by the truth. Every life is weighed in the balance by the truth. Every destiny is marked by the truth. And so the truth will have the final say in every life. Let me pray. Father, these are significantly important words to help us understand what truth is. Simply, your word tells us that you are truth. God the Father is truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And you've given us your word that we might know that your word portrays, communicates, teaches, inspires us to walk and live in the power and the wonder and the glory and the goodness of your truth. Father, thank you that there is a truth. There is the truth that sustains life and directs our steps and guides us and gives us a path of hope. Lord, all these things are precious to each of us and I thank you for them. I pray as a church we will grow in our understanding of the truth and our allegiance to the truth and our desire to study, grow, and live out the truth in every way conceivable for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for the honor and praise of you and you alone. In all these ways and things, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.